It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of October 11th, 2015. On tonight's program, we'll hear Bob Perlow say, you hit him in the leg with a pencil. Or I'll say you hit him in the leg with a shop point and his pants. At that point, she was escorted off the lot and fired summarily. Wow. And Wrench from Gangstergrass tells us about his vinyl fetish. It's made to sound like an album, like something that you would get on vinyl and put on. It's just got that, that kind of warmth to it. Uh, and it's a great album start to finish, so I definitely recommend that. This podcast is sponsored by Nobody Yet. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Hello and good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for the introduction, Craig. Craig is once again not here today. Technically speaking, I'm not here today either. I am recording this right now, sitting in a rental car just outside the birthplace of Mr. John Wayne in beautiful sunny Madison County, Iowa. And I say beautiful because it's not 150 frickin' degrees like it's been in Southern California the last, well, year and a half. And it really is beautiful country. A lot of people who are big fans of the bridges of Madison County might not be aware that the Clint Eastwood movie takes place, well, where John Wayne is born. And there's long time been a rivalry between the Wayne supporters and the Clint supporters. And frankly, I'm a supporter of the Duke. The Duke is the man, the myth, the legend, mostly though for his westerns. I like watching his westerns, the war movies, not so much. What can I tell you? I was in the neighborhood, and when I say neighborhood, I mean within a three-state area. I was attending a friend's wedding in Wisconsin, so I have had more cheese and bacon in my system than any living human being should be allowed to have. I never thought I'd say I have had enough bacon, but frankly, I've had enough bacon. I, I, it hurts me to say it. It hurts me to feel it, but it's going to be a while before I have any more bacon. And I was also in Nebraska visiting family. Hi, Mom. Mom made me cookies. Mom's cookies are the best cookies, and if you think your mom makes better cookies, my mom can beat up your mom, and that's all I'm going to say about that. It was cool to see family cool to see friends, and this podcast today is not sponsored by Spirit Airlines. That's right, Spirit Airlines is not a sponsor of the Get Off My Lawn podcast, which is why I can freely say to you, they suck. They're awful. Do not fly Spirit Airlines. When you go onto those Priceline and Kayak sorts of websites to find the cheap airfare, Spirit usually comes up at or near the top, and there's a reason for that. Once you get the ticket, you then have to pay for everything. Carry-on bags, extra. Want a window seat? extra. The seats don't recline, by the way, which is great if you take a red-eye flight and are wedged between people. It's awesome, let me tell you. I just cannot say enough bad things about Spirit Airlines to make you believe that they are genuinely not a sponsor. If you go onto the Spirit website and enter the promo code GETOFFMYLAWN, you'll get nothing because they suck. They are awful. Have I mentioned don't fly Spirit Airlines? Anyway, moving on. If you heard any genuine laughter from a live studio audience, my guest today, Bob Perlow, deserves some of the credit. Being a warm-up guy is a tough, thankless job, and I'll talk to Bob about that. But I'll also chat with Bob about his whole career and his new book, so we got that to look forward to as I sit in my rental car, staring at a, frankly, tiny little white house that was the birthplace of John Wayne, who at the time was named Marion because apparently his father had a wicked sense of humor. I don't know what else to say about that. But waste no time. Here is my interview with Bob Perlow. Enjoy. (laughs) 
Joining me via cellular telephone today is a sitcom writer who spent four decades in the business we call show. If you attended a taping of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, odds are you saw this guy warming up the crowd. Believe me, he was the best in the business. I saw several of them. His new book, The Warm-Up Guy, is due out this spring. Bob Perlow, thanks for chatting with me today. Yay, Bob! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I like that you gave yourself a round of applause. That was good. <laughs> I understand that completely. IMDb, which we both know is far from complete, it listed your first writing credits as Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy, two Gary Marshall shows. Tell me about writing scripts for sitcoms in the 70s. What was that experience like? Right now, it was like the Stone Age. They used (laughs) paper, they used a secretary, and uh, I'll be brief. If if this is uh, too complicated, (laughs) it's so familiar to me, just let me know. But we'd be in a writer's room, maybe 12, 13 different writers, and pitching. Pitching is when you have an idea for a show and you yell out, perhaps it's a joke. Now, because it was before computers, like I said, this is the stone age of sitcoms, there would have to be two uh, production assistants in the in the uh, room with legal pads, and they would have to grab these jokes out of the air. So at a certain point, a producer who was in charge of the writer's room would go, I like that. What was it again? And they would have had to have written down all of these stuff that these 12 writers are pitching at once. How about if Laverne goes to the store and does it? How about if uh, Shirley does it? How about if Rucker? And then the producer goes, I, I like that. Uh, come on, Rucker. Well, what was it? And they would have to then say it back and then type, type it in. At the end of the night, at night, early in the morning, like <laughs> two or three in the morning when the script was completed, it was then mimeographed and sent to the actors' homes where they would read it and then come in the next morning instead of emailing whatever the changes were. So there's, there's been a huge change. Remember, this was 1976 on Laverne and Shirley, Mark and Mindy, Happy Days, all, all those shows, Taxi Cheers, and it wasn't until the mid-80s where the computer was the, the tool of choice for the writers for Yeah, and I hear, I think David Milch still uses pretty much the same setup when he did Deadwood, is he still has the oh, room yeah, of people what? and stenographers and things like that. Still, you know what? I, I, I do it like this, and you hear about guys from the, from the 60s and 70s still writing in longhand, even authors of books, just they, they don't feel as comfortable with the computer, even though it is obviously easier and there's no whiteout involved, <laughs> just, just writing it on a, a legal pad or typing it. Yeah. Did uh, you get hired on first from those shows, and did you start off as a writer, a writer's assistant? How did the, how did the beginnings of Bob Perlow happen? Boy. I don't really... <laughs> I'm making you think. I get into it for anything. It's probably never happened before or since. I got a job writing on the number one show in the country, Laverne and Shirley, from playing paddle tennis. It's not like I, I had set out to be a writer or even thought of being a writer. I was just... Uh, I had a friend who I played paddle tennis with, and one day he said, Geez, you know, you're funny. You want to be a writer? So for sure, he goes, okay, hold on, something may happen. And what happened was, uh, he was promoted to producer the, f- the following week, and then came back to me, he goes, okay, you're a writer. I go, great, we are, what? Laverne and Shirley, you start next Wednesday. So 
I don't recommend that. I'm no good at ping pong anyway. Otherwise, you know, I would certain, certainly give that one a try. Well, ping pong is, is, is direct. I've been paddled tennis. <laughs> okay. so ping pong players all get uh, script deals. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> You posted a picture a while back with Robin Williams on your Facebook, with the late Robin Williams on your Facebook. How much impact did he have in writing Mork and Mindy? Did he pop into the writer's room at all? Did he consult at all? Nope. He just made it up. <laughs> we followed him. <laughs> you had to keep up. in a writer's room then or now that could equal Robin's brilliance. <laughs> so we would write sketchy stuff after, after the first couple of shows because kind of knew that... Uh, we, could, we couldn't do what he could do. And then we could, Robin answers, and then he would go on stage during rehearsal, and each time would be different, and each time would be more brilliant than the next. So rather than say, oh, Robin should say, no, 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 I don't think it. You, you can't write that stuff. Robin would do it on stage, and then we'd go, wow, that was good. Let's put that down. But that would only last till the next rehearsal because he would come up with something even more brilliant. So there was nobody as good as Robin. How long did you work on that show? That was the last two years because I wrote the, the one that introduced Mirth. It was Mark from Ork and Mirth from Earth. Mirth as most people know by now was Jonathan Winters right. who played Robin's baby who was born 6 feet 2 220 pounds <laughs> and was as an, you know what if there was an equal to Robin at the time it was Jonathan Winters and he was Robin's idol growing up the stuff that he could do I remember as a kid watching him on Ed Sullivan and on his own show where he would have a, a box full of hats and each time he put a hat on, it would be a different character. There was one story that, that I have in that book that, that sticks out in my mind. It was when I, when, when I first went into the studio, I hadn't met Jonathan Winters yet, and it was in the afternoon before the audience came in, and I walk in and go, oh, Jonathan Winters, who was one of my heroes also, and I was just about to walk over. It was a cavernous studio. And he was over in, in the set, which is in probably one-third of the studio on the far end. And as I'm walking in, I see, I see Jonathan Winters, and to my right is a uh, custodian with a, with a broom. And I look at him and go, that's Jonathan Winters. And he hadn't seen him yet. He looks over and he goes, oh, boy. I go, what? Is, is he a diva? Is he a, a cocky guy? Does he not like people coming up to him? And the guy goes... Just the opposite. I, I got to get out of here. He was ready to leave. I go, wait, well, what are you talking about? You know, if, I have to work, and if you tease me, I can't work. <laughs> so, well, I was going to yell at him. It, again, just the opposite. I go, you got to show me. So we walk up to him. The guy still has his push broom. And when Jonathan Winters catches our eyes, he goes, gentlemen, the horses are going to be thirsty. Where's the And launches into a brilliant improv, which now the janitor is involved in. This is why he didn't want to, he didn't want to see him because he knew he had to, he didn't have 20 minutes to kill to be in an improv. He goes, oh, yes, sir, the camels have been ordered. And they go, how about you, sergeant? And now I was the sergeant. I go, yes, sir. Yes, colonel. The men are fed, the horses are ordered, and we're going over the creek. He goes, the creek? He said, anyway, I don't, it's 1976 or so, so I don't remember, but I do remember that 
Jonathan Winters, once you made eye contact, you were in with him. I actually noticed something similar with someone I I know for a fact you worked with, which was Jay Leno. When I was an NBC page, I'd wander the studios from time to time with tour groups, and didn't matter for Leno. All it took was one person, and he had an audience, and that was enough for him. What was uh, you did warm up for him for how many years? I did the Tonight Show for fifteen years, five days a week, and as you well know, Jay didn't like to take vacations. Right. So we we, we worked pretty much year round. Uh, but and I'm not sure you know about this, Kevin. But Jay and I go back a little further than that. Oh yeah. Because we were. Uh, in a comedy group in Boston in the late 60s wow. called uh, Fresh Fruit Cocktail. <laughs> and we met each other in Boston and became uh, good friends on, on this improv group. And then he moved to L.A. to pursue a stand-up career once that the, the group disbanded. And a year later, I came out and we uh, actually rented a house together. We were roommates over near ABC Prospect, which was... The, the studio at that time that was doing Welcome Back Carter and the news was at the other end of Sunset Boulevard. And uh, we roommates for well over a year and remained friends. And when The Tonight Show came up, I was more than happy to, to warm up the crowd for an old crony. <laughs> I, like I said in the introduction, I, you know, I worked on maybe 40 or 50 different shows. Most of them had audiences and most of them had warm-up guys. And most of the warm-up guys, if you had to watch them more than twice, you wanted to smack them upside the head really, really hard. Uh, you were not one of those. You managed to make us enjoy you know, the, the warm-up routine. You managed to make it fresh every time and different every time. For that, I am grateful. Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. you know what? That was not... It was self-preservation. If you're going to do something five days a week, I do the same thing. I wanted to have as much fun as the audience. So I would try to switch it up as much as possible. And the book that you referred to that's going to come out in the spring... Um, I just thought of a bit that I hadn't done in so long. Do you remember, were you there when I did the, the drunk in the audience? The drunk, no. Oh, wait, yeah, I saw it once. I think I saw it once. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't do it a lot. Right. People that, I had to wait for weeks for people that would come back again and again. If they saw me, they would go, oh, that's Bob watching me going to be drunk. What, what happened was, instead of coming out and saying, hey, thanks for coming, I would get there two hours early and stand in line with the audience with a paper bag. And and little bit, I would sip from the paper bag and it looked like there was a bottle of scotch or vodka and it, it was a soda. But little by little, and I would go and take my seat in the audience. Now I had told the pages, I go, look, when I start to do this, you guys look shocked and then come and get me. Because little by little, it, yeah, oh, Jay, very good. Starting to slur <laughs> and, and 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 poking people and people going. <laughs> I go, you sure? I paid my money. I go, I go, it's free. I go, well, I lost money then. And more and more drunker and drunker. Jay would come out as as we both know and talk to the audience for ten minutes in his jean uh, pants and jean shirt, and then go and change, which is when I would usually come out on stage. In these cases where I, I played the drunk, Jay would leave, and, I, and the audience would be quiet, and I would yell out, Hey, Jay! What about me? <laughs> then people would be 
come on, man, be quiet. I go, you man, be, you be quiet. And then on cue, one of the pages who I don't even set this up, would come over, please, sir, come with me. And I would get up, and then I would run away. I would run down on the stage, and they'd be chasing me, and the, and the security would be chasing me, but they would stop before I got to the stage. I would grab the microphone and go, ladies and gentlemen, what you saw just now is an incident that really happened about, well, actually, it never happened, but it could. <laughs> and then I would just stop my, my uh, warm-up. <laughs> yep. Those were the days, Kevin. <laughs> I, do, I do remember those, yeah. It was, I think, the time I was there... Howie Mandel had his talk show across the hall from The Tonight Show, and a lot of us as pages, we'd have to start on The Howie Mandel Show and then wrap it, you know, wrap our day working The Tonight Show. Howie Mandel went through a lot of warm-ups that didn't work out. And I won't name names, I won't go into details, but <laughs> we kept saying, why don't you guys hire Bob? Please hire Bob. For the love of God, hire Bob. Uh -huh. Just... <laughs> You know what? You know, you know what that points up to, though. And I, this is not that I'm not bragging or anything, but I'm not a stand-up comic. And a lot of these shows would hire stand-up comics, thinking, "Oh, they're funny; they'll be great." Whereas, as we both know, the Tonight Show was the apparition as far as warm-ups because it didn't take that long. Right. But most sitcoms, and I worked most of my life on sitcoms, would take. Minimum three hours to maximum, let's say a show like Friends, eight hours. Right. Now, if you hire a, a stand-up comic, they're pretty used to, to doing their, their half-hour to 45-minute set. Yeah. Whereas I didn't have a set. I would just <laughs> talk to the audience. Uh, previous to, to being in show business, I was a tour guide. I would take two, two busloads of people for two weeks at a time up and down the coast of California. So there was no way I was ever going to run out of material. I had two <laughs> weeks of it. So eight hours was like, I was just getting warmed up. Yeah. Whereas a stand-up would go through his material and be very funny, but stop being funny where the audience needs you to be uh, warm, congenial, amusing, not laugh, laugh out funny because that's what the show is supposed to do. If you do that too much, you're not doing the job. You're getting them ready to laugh at the jokes. Right. Now, the book that you've got due out in the spring, is that a compilation of warm-up stories, or is it a whole career retrospective type of thing? Nope, it's just warm-up stories. I, for, some, for some reason, I, I, I wanted photos for my own collection of, of everyone I worked with. So starting with Laverne and Shirley, I started taking pictures from this. This was on film. There were no cell phone cameras right. at the time. And I have photos and video of from Laverne and Shirley through Taxi, Chiz, Night Court, Newhart, Two and a Half Men. I have, I have pictures of me with every celebrity I've worked with. So uh, the, the book is about the, the sitcoms and talk shows that I worked on accompanied by, by photos. So it's, it's kind of a fun thing, and these are the behind-the-scenes stories. A lot of times when you work on a show, I worked on New Heart for eight years, Cheers for five. After a while, you're not the guy from the outside. So right. I was privy to a lot of stories that these people really felt, and, and they didn't care if I was listening because I was more or less the 
wallpaper. I'm just flying the wall. That's just Bobby, the warm-up guy. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm listening. Right. And this book kind of tells the, the, the behind-the-scenes stories. And these aren't tales out of school. They've said it. I heard it. And I'm telling it in a book. Very, very cool. I've got to ask, because you mentioned it, Night Court. I want to hear some good stories about Night Court now, please. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. I know you wrote for it. I know you even appeared in an episode or two. I wrote two of them, and I was in three of them, and did the warm-ups for eight years. Uh, a story in the book and in my one-man show that I do now, in, in, in conjunction with the, with the book, who I, I, let me post it to you. Name some of the cast. Oh, gosh. Harry Anderson, Richard Mull, John Larroquette, Marky Post, Charles who Robinson. Was, who was that last one? Marky Post. Yeah. But before Marky Post, who was it? Oh, the early season DA, or, pro, or defense, public defenders. Oh, oh. I'm blanking on the names. Help me out. Exactly. Because... <laughs> I know they rotated <laughs> through them se season <laughs> two. The poster is in the book. There's a poster of the cast. You can wait a minute. I don't know who that is. And it was a girl that they hired. She played she Billy. She was going to be the uh, defender. And for some reason thought that she was the co-star with Harry Anderson, which was not the case. They hired Andy Harry to be... Uh, the star of the show. He was on Cheers as Harry the Hat, a con man. Right. And the network loved him and said, let's do a show with this guy. And the producers got together and came up with the concept of a night court. And they hired all these other people to compliment Harry. However, this one girl assumed wrongly, as you'll see, <laughs> that she was the co-star. And, and Harry were going to be a love interest, whatever her reasoning. The day before a shoot, she's reading the script, and you can see her face get angrier and angrier, and so she threw it down and said, this is wrong. Where are my lines? She didn't have as many lines as Harry, which of course she didn't. She right. was a star. And got so angry, she went over and <laughs> hit him in the leg with a pencil. <laughs> Well, let's say he hit him in the leg with the sharp point and threw his pants. Mm. At that point, she was escorted off the lot and fired summarily. Wow. The producers then called up some other girls who had read the part, one of whom was Maki Post. And now the, the, the big thing with the book is I show the poster of the cast with this girl whose name was Karen. And then the following day, the same picture, only it's Maki Post. <laughs> I, I love this story because you, you can never, you can never be too big to think that you, you, you're irreplaceable, even yeah. if your name is in the title. Not Night Court, but another show, the Valerie Hopper show. Remember I that? I remember that well, and I remember Valerie not being a part of the show after what season Which two. Became the Horgan yes, it did. So anyone who gets too big in Hollywood, they can bring you down no matter no matter what. Yeah, and I've I worked on a couple of shows. That one one of my favorite stories was I worked on. Well, again, I was young. I needed the money. I worked on a talk show starring a a young man named Richard Simmons, who I'm sure you've heard of. He was fired mid episode. We went to commercial. 
He was told he was canceled. He came back all weepy-eyed and did a farewell that never aired, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But yeah, yeah they, I mean, the, the, the show business path is littered with those stories. Yeah, I actually did a when you said that. I I, I even warmed up an audience for an infomercial starring Susan Powder. I remember her. The white-haired yeah uh, she yeah. Was the, the gymnast or exercise. Close to a thousand pounds. Yeah. Or something. And we did fitness tapes. It was uh, wacky with the white hair. And that took all day to do. That, uh, an infomercial. And you had to get the audience. Ah, yeah. No. Uh, tell him, don't worry, the sandwiches will be here soon. Because they were paid. <laughs> These people weren't interested in the product at all. These were paid members. Well, of course, audience, yeah. Which, did you ever do any, any uh, game shows? I did a couple of them, yeah. The one when you mentioned that and the, you know, keeping the audiences, there was one on CBS when they had all the millionaire clones happening at the time. Uh, they did one that Dick Clark hosted but didn't produce called Winning Lines. And oh, okay. the, it, it, you started out with 150 contestants and through the process of the game narrowed it down to one. And the computer system required to make that all work never worked. And it was about 12 hours to do two episodes. And the audience was beyond belligerent at that point. They didn't want to clap. The warm-up guy left. He gave up. <laughs> and so, well, I leave, which is why, you know, I, I lasted so long. I go, you know what? I take this as a personal affront. No one is leaving. We're in this. Let's have some fun. Let's face it. If you had any kind of a life, you wouldn't be here anyway. Right. So let's not make believe you're going to go meet the president. You're not. I got food for you. I got some shirts for you. Let's make the Let's have fun. And that's what you had to do, even though, honestly, it was not fun. Yeah. Not a, not a <laughs> lot of times. You had to make it seem like it was fun. Yep. Yeah, as I used to say when I would lead the tours through, I'd say, you know, take one. Yeah, the audience is going to laugh at the joke if the joke is legitimately funny. But by take 12, the audience doesn't want to laugh anymore. <laughs> okay, but you know what, Kevin? They did not look at you. The producers didn't go to, to the uh, ushers or the pages. Why aren't they laughing? Right. They would call me down and go, what's wrong? Yeah. Now, in my mind, I'm going, what's wrong? <laughs> How about if I told you a joke four times? Would you laugh? But the ego on many, many producers and writers is such that, well, this is the funniest joke of all time, mm -hmm. and they, they should laugh each and every time. As much as you wanted to say that, that would be the last time you worked on the show. Yep. So out of self-preservation, you go, <laughs> yep, boy, they don't get it. And meanwhile, they got it. They laughed the first time or two on, on a show like Friends or New Heart. On Mark and Mindy, it was totally different because each time was different. Right. But on Friends, where they just change a word or two, it's the same joke. There's no way a normal person would laugh. Yeah, and I think the worst experience for me working on a show was when Mad TV was on the air. And they would do entire sketches start to finish five or six times. And would that be the same way? Ex they, almost they exactly the same way. Almost exactly the same way. And wow. I'm you talk they had some brilliant actors on that. They did, who went on to do great things, but it was like you would sit and watch this and I had friends that were legitimately fans of the show and it made me stop watching this show <laughs> just working on it. But Oh it, boy, yeah, you get you go, I hate them, I yeah. hate everything about them. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, now Trying to get back to you. It's, this is your your interview, not mine. Uh, <laughs> you had you had. Get off the phone and let me talk. That's right. <laughs> Hang up, would you? 
you did a show, and I'm curious only because, again, I don't know how accurate IMDb is with this, but you did Who's the Boss, and then it looks like you went on to do the British version of Who's the Boss as well. Did you actually go to England for that, or did they just credit you for scripts used? That's the beauty of show business. <laughs> they just used the script that I wrote. Perfect. I, I, to this day, and I, I do this in my stage show, uh, people go, whoa, now that you retired, what about money? I go, money just keeps flying in. Excellent. And I usually take an unopened residual check and open it up, and I, I show it on the screen. It's usually 10 cents, <laughs> 20 cents, and that's what you, you, you're referring to. You right. don't write it. They buy the script, and you get foreign residuals, which is pennies, because it's been shown a million times, and each time they show it, it's less and less. And I show a check on the screen, it's blown up, it's for nine cents for a 48-cent stamp. So, uh, <laughs> that's the question. No, I didn't go to England, they didn't come to me. It's just a reuse, it's a residual that happens. But, but if you look at these other guys who who own the shows, sure. nine cents is probably 9,000 per episode. So that's where the, the huge money in Hollywood is. And, and uh, when they hit 100 episodes, any show, that's the syndication money. And then that's where it, it really starts to roll in. I was never party to that, unfortunately, <laughs> but and I know people who were, and it's just enormous amount of money. Yeah, I know I was in the Peace Corps years ago, and uh, I was in a Russian-speaking country. One of the most popular remakes of a show over there was the remake of Married with Children. And it was so popular that when the show was canceled by Fox, the Russian production company commissioned Married with Children's writers and producers to write another season. And so it actually aired in Russia for an additional season more than it did here in the U.S. Yep, I have friends who, who were commissioned to write uh, additional episodes from perfect strangers uh, for German television and it, that was a real job yeah. they, they had to rewrite the original script and everybody got in on that and did the, did the scripts for them now did you do, it looked like you were like a script consultant on Who's the Boss or because you did more than just writing on that show I was uh, a story editor on Who's the Boss, I actually oh, okay. did not do the warm up because it was a little flattering, even though I missed it, but they, they respected the writing uh, so much that there was no time to, to do the warm-up because we would be back in the writer's room. So Who's the Boss was a, a full-time writing job. Yeah, I, the, the whole reason I wanted to ask about the British version was that, you know, Pussy Galore from the Bond movies was the Mona character in that one, and I wanted to hear what you had to say about her. But that didn't happen, so that's okay. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. A lot of times you lose. <laughs> so you take those few wins, you save them. <laughs> this is true. So uh, what now, I know you said you do a one-man show with some of these stories here. How often a year do you do that? I, I do that. Uh, I'm, I'm living in Rhode Island now, and it's getting to be a pretty popular show. It's called Tales from Hollywood, <laughs> and it's the, the live version of the book. The, 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 the disappointing, and not a disappointing is a bad word, uh, what, what, what happens is I, I run out of time because the audience is given a program of over 200 celebrities and shows that I've worked on or people I've worked with, and the show is 
is totally audience questions. Like, oh, what about Robin Williams? What about John? And I would launch into a story with photos or video. How's Dr. Phil? I was on Dr. Phil a few times, and I have the video. I show that. But they, every time, we, the, all we do is touch on it, because you have Cheers and Taxi, oh, uh, yeah. Newhart, Coach. I, I, I think you, like you said, IMDB has a fraction of the yeah. stuff I've worked on, because in the program that's handed out, there's over 200, and in an hour and a half, you touch on maybe six or seven, because the stories are fun, and, and people are really interested in them. Uh, there have been talks of remakes of some of the shows that you worked on. There was Full House, which is going through. Coach, which I heard recently, is not going through. Did you get approached for well, any sure, of that? The other day, I, I turned on, on Facebook, one of the actresses uh, who played Dopper's girlfriend, her name is Pam Stone, uh, wrote that they paid us, we shot it, and now they're not going to show them. Yeah. Which is too bad, because I loved, I loved Coach. Yeah, that show had a unique Being sensibility to it. This is true. Which is made up. It's not, they go, oh, that must be Michigan or Minnesota. Yep. But it's, no. It's not. It's, 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 they, uh, it's a commissioned song that they did. Yeah, that's too bad. And Full House is now Fuller House. Right. And that's on, I believe, Netflix, right? Yeah, it's going to be one of those. Yeah, one of the one of the pay services. You don't get approached for things like that anymore, or do you choose not to? Uh, a combination. When you leave Hollywood, you leave Hollywood. <laughs> you go. Well, I can always go back. No, you can't. No. There's somebody. There's not somebody. There's a hundred guys ready to take your place, unless you've really, unless you're Norman Lear or Gary Marshall. If you're just one of the foot soldiers, it's over. And you know what? I did thirty six years, thirty seven years. And I, I was not at work once. It was a great, great ride, and I, I don't regret one second of it. Well, you got me beat by about thirty years. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I left, I left that. Like I said, I left it and joined the Peace Corps. That was how dramatic a, a jump I made out of Hollywood. So there you go. Oh, you did a nice thing. <laughs> This is the time where we would normally interrupt the interview with a word from one of our excellent sponsors. But you slackers haven't ponied up the dough yet. Come on, surely you want your product or service associated with such phrases as... Craig, anybody you would like to sponsor the show? Anything you, you would like to have at the household? Uh, we Any sort of heating and air conditioning people would be nice. <laughs> yes, Backpack Studios is unair conditioned, as, as is obvious from the condition of Craig's and my shirt. Or... You know, people, a lot of people say to me, boy, I bet you're really wringing your hands because you don't, can't get a piece of this Trump thing. <laughs> no, I have to say, you know, being, having that critical distance, I can, I now have the freedom as, a, as, as an out-of-work monologue writer to be disgusted by him <laughs> rather than sort of enthralled at the comic possibilities. And even... Well, Vic, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Uh, we're done? We're done. So, we're gonna eat does that now. mean we have to stop talking? No, well, yeah, we'll just sit in silence. That won't be awkward at all. Right. What if the best stuff we say is when the mic is on? Should I keep recording? No. <laughs> <laughs> Email us at getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com, and we can make all your promotional dreams come true. Now, back to our program already in progress. You have to separate... Uh, 
the performance and the comedy from the real life character because there's, there's nobody that is, is like that in real life and you know what we mentioned Bob Newhart he's one of the closest yeah he he was the same guy and I worked on the show for eight years the moment Larry Darrell and Darrell <laughs> the end and he is what you see is what you get with Bob Newhart and he, he's one of the guys I mean I know I'm jumping around but nice. there, there's so many shows I worked on he was would come out before the show and talk to the audience for about five minutes, tell a few jokes, and nobody, I, I realized it, but, but very few realized what a leg up that gets you in a sitcom. So now, he came out, then he goes back, I come out and talk for a while, and then the show starts, and now instead of the audience saying, I wonder what he's like, they already feel like they know him. Yeah. And they're ready to laugh at joke one. Whereas, and I'm going back a million years, remember Madeline Kahn? Oh, I have a long, unrequited love with Miss Kahn, yes. She passed away way too soon in life. She's terrific. Yeah. However, on her first sitcom, which was called Oh Madeline, she would not come out even for a cast and production. Wow. And this was her first foray into TV, Consequently, and I was doing the warm-up, when the scene started, the audience was, oh, that's bad. They weren't ready to laugh. They right. were more ready to say, oh, there's Madeline Kahn from, from Young Frankenstein or whatever they would remember her from. So it was almost imperative that uh, cast members should, even to this day, if they have an audience, come out and say hello. So when the scene starts, the audience will go, oh, that's our friend Penny and Cindy, who, by the way, would come out. The whole cast of Laverne and Shirley would come out for and do two minutes individually. Lenny and Squiggy would play the guitar and sing. Phil Foster would do a joke. And this led to the audience really liking the people and therefore ready to laugh at the characters. When you see them and kind of get a little bit of, not behind the scenes, but just a little bit of personal time with them, it makes a difference as an audience. Oh, it, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, now, now you're friends with them. Yeah. And then they're ready to laugh. Did you say what was the worst warm-up I've ever done? <laughs> I did not, but you seem like you've got that story to tell. Oh, <laughs> you um, it, it was a, a job I really didn't want to do. I got a call one day. They go, we, we've got your name, and we know you, you're good. We'd love to hire you. Uh, Michael Jackson is doing a video when he covered a Beatles song because he had bought the, the rights to all their albums. Right. So he was going to do a uh, MTV, I guess it was at the time, video of Come Together. Mm. And I said, to be honest... They, they told me the audience was going to be uh, most, you know, totally black or mostly black. I, I go, look, at I'm a little white guy. There's nothing racial here. It's just, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm the guy for that job. Oh, it's great. Look, at uh, you come out at five minutes to one. At one o'clock, Michael will come out, do the song maybe once or twice, and that'll be it. I go, I'm really, I, you know, I, no offense, but I, it's, it's not a crowd that I can relate to and they can't relate to me. And, It'll be fine. It's five minutes. I go, not really. I go, $3,000. I go, what time? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I can do five minutes. So I get there, and it's the audience, a young urban audience, and me, a little white guy. I go, Look, 
I'm who I am. I'm here just to introduce Michael. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> okay, I'll shut up. We only have a few minutes. Uh, so that's five minutes to one. Uh, one o'clock comes, I look at the stage manager, and he's giving me the sign that says stretch. <laughs> I go, okay, another, I can do a few more minutes, I guess. Cut to five minutes to four. He hadn't come out yet. <laughs> By this time, I had given out every prize. I, g- I gave away stuff from this set. I gave away <laughs> all the money I had on me. Your shoes are probably gone at that point. Oh, they were taken immediately. Yeah. <laughs> no, I joke because I love. Yes. Anyway, uh, the, yeah, that was the toughest one. Four hours, and I had them dancing and singing, but uh, there was, there was, it, was, it was like pulling teeth, and always with a smile. There right. was never... Are you okay? I'm fine. It'll be terrific. But and you know what else? Uh, friends. Yeah. Friends. Eight hours. I don't know if you knew anyone, any pages that did friends. No. But eight hours. Nobody likes you after eight hours. <laughs> Even if they like you at the beginning, they hate you. So how you doing? We hate you. So, yeah, I know, but I'm not going to let you leave. So you might as well like it. Anyway, the the book and the show is full of these stories. I, I hope we, you know that. I've given you something. I think you have, and I thank you for taking the time with me today. You know, it's like I said, I, you know, I knew you a little bit just very, very briefly from when I was a page and worked at NBC, but this has been a good experience for me getting to hear some of these stories. Let me know when, when the book is scheduled for release, and we will promote that on the site. And if you uh, have other stories you'd care to share when the book comes out, give me a call and we'll do this again. That would be terrific, Kevin. Good to, good to talk to you. Again. Yeah, good to talk with you as well. Thank you again, and take care of yourself. You too. It's time once again for our shameless pandering to hipsters and audiophiles alike. Here's Kevin with today's Vinyl Fetish. Thank you again, Craig. Today's Vinyl Fetish is next week's guest, a man called Wrench. Wrench is the man, the myth, the legend behind the group Gangstagrass. If you're not familiar with Gangstagrass, get familiar with them. They are a one-of-a-kind group. They combine hip-hop, bluegrass, country, folk, and a lot of other things. It, 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 it's a unique sound. It's an awesome sound. When I asked Wrench about his vinyl fetish, he had a lot of interesting things to say about that. Mm-hmm. Well, the first one that comes to mind when you say that is, uh, is the latest Sturgill Simpson album, uh, which is called Meta Modern Sounds in Country Music, because it just it's, it's made to sound like an album, like something that you would get on vinyl and put on. It's just got that that kind of warmth to it, uh, and it's a great album start to finish. So I definitely recommend that, uh, as well as uh, an album by Blitz and Trapper, who um, I haven't generally listened to, but this one album they did that's called uh, Seven in Roman numerals um, that's got some very cool sounds, and uh, I would definitely recommend for, for getting on vinyl. Have you released any of the Gangster Grass stuff on vinyl yet? We have. Uh, Broken Hearts and Stolen Money is available on vinyl, and there's also a Wrench versus Gangster Grass vinyl, which has uh, Wrench solo songs on one side and Gangster Grass songs on the other. <laughs> so uh, we made sure to get those out and, and have some vinyl available, people. So we, we appreciate it, and we make sure that it's there as an option because we think it's pretty cool. Um, I wish more people would buy the vinyl. 
but uh, that's a, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> it's a it's a niche market for sure. It's yeah, that's true. But I mean, it's it really has sort of blossomed again. I, I keep crediting the hipsters for that. They're, you know, in 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 and amongst their skinny jeans wearing and you know flannel shirt wearingness, they've managed to kind of bring back what was really a dead form of media, but one that I've I've always really enjoyed. You know, I've had my vinyl collection since I was a kid, and I've man, you know, I still listen to it. You know, there, there's something about that putting the needle on on the vinyl and letting it work. Mm-hmm. For sure. Hope you enjoyed that little preview of the interview with Wrench from Gangster Grass. He is a cool guy, and uh, he's our first musical guest. And I hope to have more musicians on the show in the coming weeks and months. But make sure you tune in next week to hear his interview in its entirety. That's all from Iowa at this time. From the cooler weather. From a rental car, this is Kevin, and I get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn Podcast, brought to you by Nobody Yet. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments, or to suggest a guest, our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbri.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend. <laughs>